0: Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television, join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, did Home Alone Rowan John uses career, the greatest movie never made, and how Jackie Chan creates perfection through failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Son of Indian immigrants, Jimmy Sonny grew up with his nose in a book. In high school, he was writing for the school paper. Today, he's known as the former managing editor of the Huffington Post, and he's currently an author. He first published A Mind at Play about Claude Shannon, a mathematician and the father of information theory. His latest book, The Founders, uncovers the story of PayPal. That includes interviews with Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, among others. In this interview, Jimmy talks about elegantly crafting history, his obsession with nonfiction, the logistics of his interview process, why all writers are actually entrepreneurs, how digital marketing has evolved beyond publishing, why writers are craftsmen, not artists, and advice for writers with newborns.
1: When I was younger, I was a pretty avid reader. Um, my It's funny, the, the real story is my parents were, you know, we immigrated. I was five years old. They didn't know about Boy Scouts or any other th- activities or anything. And so we just spent a lot of time in the library. And so I grew up just like always with my nose in a book. And I think a lot of people come to writing that way. Like you read a lot. And so you end up writing, like you end up wanting to be what you're spending all your time doing, right? So if you play basketball as a kid, you're like, oh, I really want to be Michael Jordan, (laughs) you know? And uh, I just remember reading a lot. And then I started kind of writing for the school paper when I was in high school. And I did like yearbook. I was a total nerd. Um, And then I just had a really good teachers who kind of said like, hey, you might have some talent for this. You should figure it out, see if you can make this a thing. And then I kind of started just writing things for this for a college paper and then so on and so forth and that's how I got to it um but the the passion dates back I mean like I just I've always loved words and I've always loved writing
0: what kind of stuff were you reading like was there thinking back was there anything that led you into more non-fiction research-based work or like how do you kind of see that you came to that yeah
1: I you know, it's sort of two, two things that are that are interesting about it. The first is when I was younger, I read a lot of fiction. And now as an adult, I read like an embarrassingly small amount of fiction. Um, I actually should probably get back to that. Um, so when I was younger, it was like the Mossflower Matameo series by Brian Jacques. Um, it, was, it was like cartoon books I liked. Loved the Garfield cartoon books. I loved Encyclopedia Brown. I loved all that stuff. And then as I got older... You know, I think nonfiction, it's a, such it's, it's a good question. I think I just really started to love history. So I, I just really like began to, I, I like would love reading about, you know, sort of late 18th century America or mid 20th century America um, or, you know, Roman history from like around the Republic. And like, I would just dive into different periods of history and read everything I could get my hands on. And then that naturally like led me to, well, I I like this. What if I can do it? And then that kind of led to the books that I've done. Um, But I think a lot of it was just like passion for very specific historical events, but from writers who are able to make them come alive, meaning like it's not, you know, because like history can be like, I mean, history is homework, (laughs) right? Right. right? Like history can be really dull, if not elegantly crafted. And so when I found people like Barbara Tuckman or Candace Millard or, you know, um, or Robert Caro, right, or Stacey Schiff, who can like really like make stuff sing. I I was like, well, this is amazing. Like you can take something from the past, like the life of Cleopatra and bring it to like, like make it really vibrant and interesting the way Stacey Schiff does. Or you could take a president no one's ever heard of, like no one follows James Garfield and make this really specific moment about his death super dramatic and interesting. Without, by the way, skimping on the research, they weren't making stuff up. And so that's kind of where I started like evolving. Um, But it was like really good nonfiction, like what nonfiction that is so good that it like grabs you and just pulls you in and you can't get away from it.
0: Hmm. How do you think about how historical books relate to the day they're printed? So, like, I talked to Jonathan Hmm. Eag, he was writing probably the seventh book of Muhammad Ali, but it was the big one, you know, and that type of thing how do you think about like mind at play this is a good time to write mind at player this is a good time to write the founders the founders is more recent but I mean with some mm-hmm. of these historical pieces how does it relate to today should it relate to today in the book
1: yeah it's it's the great question it's really funny I just bought Jonathan's book on Ali um and uh I'm excited to get into it I'm like on a on a kick about him and I want to read a bunch of stuff um I would say that there's no perfect answer to that question in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. So um, there's this old joke that someone was once with, I think it was Mao. I might get this joke wrong. So someone should correct me if I get it wrong, but somebody was, was like talking to Mao and they said, sir, what's your view of the French revolution? You know, which had happened like kind of like a long, long time before they were talking to him. I'm like, what's your view of the French revolution? It's like over a hundred years ago or whatever. And he goes, I think it's a little too early to tell. <laughs> right. And so, right. in some ways, like if you're writing about the past, I would say, I would say the following, and I'm not any kind of expert. I, you know, there's probably people who have sharper thoughts on this. Here's what I would say um, I benefited with the following things with Shannon. My book of mine to play was about Dr. Claude Shannon, who was one of the inventors of the field of information theories, considered one of the godfathers of modern technology and digital communications. We live in the world he created. You and I can do this chat over Zoom because of many of the theories that he pioneered. And mm-hmm. so it felt, that when I did that five years ago, it felt like the right time to go back and dive in because I can credibly say that his work advanced technology far enough. With the founders, it's a little bit of a different challenge because you have Elon Musk and you have Reid Hoffman, you have Peter Thiel, you have all of these the kind of digital pioneers, internet pioneers. Um and t- technological pioneers, because obviously what Elon does today is not strictly speaking like an internet-based company um, or companies, mm-hmm. I thought that they would be willing to talk and I thought it would be a good idea to talk to them before they all, you know, passed away, <laughs> right? right? So so if you think about it, like like maybe five years after, they wouldn't have been as reflective about the experience, mm-hmm. but 10 or 20 years from now, a few of them might not be around, Right. right. And so you're talking about people who are sort of like late 40s, early 50s, the actuarial odds don't look good in 2042, right? And so it wasn't that I planned it this way. I will freely admit I kind of chanced into this project a little bit, but I, I just lucked into the absolute right time. Because when you're in your kind of late 40s and early 50s, you know, you're reflective, but all your memories are still intact. And so yeah. you're like able to remember things. You're able to tell me to connect with your friends and all of that. And so, you know, in a wonderful way, I, I'm struck at the exact right time. I don't think there's a precise moment for it. And the way that you know that there isn't is that people are still writing books about things that happened thousands of years ago, right? Yeah. As well, they should. Like Stacey Schiff's book on Cleopatra is remarkable. And she wrote about somebody who we actually know, like there's so little In the historical record, she didn't keep a memoir or anything, you know, she didn't keep journals or not that we have access to anyway. So I, these are always going to be kind of, it's a little bit of like guesswork, like you're always going to have to like be careful about when you publish and what you do. I, I will say this, like part of the response to the book, which has been really, really positive, is I think people are doing a kind of fresh look at technology and the innovators who make it for, for good and for ill, right? But I think we've had a few years of books about WeWork and books about Facebook and books about Theranos right. and people are like, well, okay, but what about the other <laughs> side of this, right? right. And I, I was really inspired by groups like Fairchild Semiconductor and General Magic and Xerox Park, where like you had groups of innovators doing really interesting things. And that's just like my, my I wanted to move in that direction. I'm not a tech journalist, right? But the so I think there's room there's room in the culture for someone who's like writing something that says hey what what you know, how do you start something from scratch how do you build anything from scratch and then bring it to scale that is you know sort of fun one of the fundamental stories in the PayPal book.
0: How difficult was it for you to arrange these interviews? Did you kind of. Talk about a mind at play. You talk about your previous work. I mean, yeah, I'm sure you already had the book deal. If you want to kind of go through the logistics of a little bit, but how hard was yeah. it to arrange these interviews and that type of thing?
1: I would I would love to. I think it's important that authors share this because, particularly authors like me, where like I didn't have a platform, or I'm not like you know a writer for Bloomberg Business Week or anything. I was a guy who did books. Um, so it was, you know, I would say the uh, two 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 reflections on your question. The first is it was difficult to arrange the interviews just given the nature of the people involved. Um, You know, I interviewed, so like, actually let's start from the beginning. I interviewed a lot of people. So I interviewed people that are probably household names for the folks listening. You know, Mm -hmm. Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, et cetera. I also interviewed a lot of people who never made the front pages of newspapers. Mm -hmm. And one of the big parts of this project was actually getting people to talk to me who had never talked about PayPal before. So here's actually an interesting reflection in some ways it's harder to get people who don't want to have any press to talk to you for the first time than it is to get Elon Musk to talk for the 50th time about PayPal. Right. Okay. Because, because he's a, he's a public person. Peter Thiel's a public person. They, they know what to do in these situations. They know how these situations tend to go. They know the difference between on the record, off the record and on background. There's a system that they're accustomed to. I had, I had some people, you know, who had never gotten pressed before. And, they would send me questionnaires like I had to fill out like a questionnaire about like, what's the project, who are your sources, what's the length going to be, you know, like, like really detailed. Yeah. And then I had some people, honestly, who were just who just were like a little skeptical and I would have to win them over. And that sometimes involved having their friends tell them like, hey, he's you know, he's on the level. He's you know, he's really trying to tell a story. Sometimes it, it meant me politely reaching out a few times to get someone to talk to me. Right. So I kept this pretty epic spreadsheet of like the names of the people in the company, how many times I'd contacted them. (laughs) Green, green meant they'd talk to me. Yellow meant I hadn't heard back. Red meant that I'd heard back and it was like a hard no. Uh, And luckily I had, you know, many more greens and yellows than I did reds. And so it was, it was really difficult. Here's, here's my thought about it though, the, the sort of broader thought, which is, you know, I had the great fortune of talking to these people about a time in their lives that's in the past, and they enjoyed talking about that time. I don't think that if you're living it, it would be the same. I think if you're living it, it would be like a a stressful nightmare, right? Mm -hmm. Building a company from scratch like this where there's a lot going on. But I had this really great thing happen, which is every time I would schedule 30 minutes, I would get an hour. Every time I scheduled an hour, I would get two, right? Mm -hmm. And people wanted to follow up. They wanted me to come back in. They wanted me to like, keep talking to them. And I don't know that that's anything special that I was doing, but I think that people wanted to reminisce. Like they, this was some of the oldest friendships they'd formed. It was one of their first experiences after college. And so I had the benefit of people wanted to share their stories. They like, they wanted to talk about it. And obviously that took a little bit of shoe leather, but that's the name of the game. Hmm.
0: How do you think about, so kind of what you've described and the, and the book itself, it's about like the entrepreneurial spirit. Do you think writers today have to have that? Like you really, you're coming at this from part of it's like a a salesmanship almost, right? Just to get to the point where you can actually write the book. Like, how do you think about those two things? Are they both necessary today to be an author?
1: I think they're a hundred percent necessary for, for a few reasons. The first is, you know, you have to, you have to, like, like a, a book project isn't going to do right itself and you need your sources to cooperate, but your sources need to feel like you respect their time and that you respect their contribution. And the way you do that is like, just like, at least for me, it's just like through sheer doggedness, right? Like I, I, can't tell you the number of YouTube videos I watched before I went in with any of the people that I interviewed, especially the folks who are more public people. Like I watched or read or listened to everything they said. I mean, it was crazy. Like the amount of just like, it's almost like I, you know what I thought about it? I thought about like football players watch game tape, writers should watch YouTube videos, (laughs) right? Like, like I was like, oh, okay, this is my game tape. Like I can watch, you know, Peter Thiel be interviewed by somebody else and like kind of learn about how he operates and all that. And that was a big part of it for me was just making like, just getting that like kind of work done. The second piece that's a little bit entrepreneurial is, you know, you have to like, we're in a culture where I'm not just competing against other books that are published. I'm competing against, you know, the crown and Netflix and like marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And like, I'm competing, like you're competing for people's very limited time and attention. And in a universe of things what you're competing against where you're competing against TikTok, Twitter, Netflix, Hulu, and everything else that goes on in people's lives, why why should a reader give you eight to 10 hours of their time with your thing that you made, right? And so you have to be entrepreneurial in thinking even about how you're going to sell the book, where you're going to sell the book. Who are you going to talk to about it? Like, how are they going to hear about it for the first time? You can't depend on publishers to do that. I mean, frankly, they don't, they don't, you know, that's not their sort of strength yeah. at this point. Um, digital marketing's evolved way further than where, where publishing has evolved. And so that's that's a part of it too. And then the last piece I would say is is that a book is like a startup in another way, which is it's not just a one-person show. You know, there's an author on the front cover. Like, I owe a tremendous debt to like a million people who are basically like my board of directors or like other people who worked with me or allies or whatever. Like, I had all of these amazing people, particularly at Simon Schuster, who made this book come to life. And so it is entrepreneurial in that way because you it's hard to be a so it's hard to think of yourself as an author as a solopreneur. Like, you're not going to be able to do it on your own. Um, you need I, had, I hired a fact checker. His name was Ben Kalen. He's amazing. But Ben went through the whole text with a really, really, really keen eye and was like, wrong, 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 wrong. Fix this. Prove this to me. Why don't you say this? This is nonsense. You know, like it was really tough with me. He was like beating me up for two months. Um, he's funny. He's like, he said, he's like, I have the only job where I'm like paid to, I'm, right. I'm paid to annoy you, right? right. Like, um, but, but my editors, you know, Stephanie Freerick and Emily Emily at Simon & Schuster, like they, they were amazing. Like they went through everything the same way, like making double checking, triple checking, calling me out where I like missed something or maybe didn't explain something enough. So that's the other way in which it's entrepreneurial. But I would say, like, here, here's the other thing. Like about 50 years ago, writing a book was a different thing. You know, you weren't, yeah, you you were, it was easier in some ways. Like you, you, you books were a bigger part of the culture. Right. And maybe I'm wrong about that, by the way. Maybe I'm like completely, actually, I could say I'm wrong about that because book sales are doing okay in the sense of like the broad aggregate sales. So
0: the marketing is probably different. You The publicist used to do all that stuff for you.
1: I think the cool thing about doing books now and why it, it helps to think of yourself as an entrepreneur in some way, in some limited way, right. Is you don't have to just sit back, right? Like you don't have to sit back anymore. Like I can do things. I can find people. I can talk to people like you. And the, the, the message of the book gets out there and your listeners learn something. And that's really, really cool. That never, you used to have to like walk to bookstores and like do talks and stuff, right? But like, I just dropped my daughter off at school and you and I are talking over Zoom. Like yeah. it, it, it's a powerful thing to be able to speak to millions of people as opposed to just like having to go from bookstore to bookstore and city to city and like travel through the heartland of the United States to sell books. Like I, I just wouldn't, I, I would have a hard time doing that.
0: Right. So this is maybe an obvious question, but what's, what are some of the benefits of like, let's say you, for some reason you didn't get the Musk interview, but there's so much data out there. As far as the final book, you could probably come pretty close to what the information is. Mm -hmm. Is it just the legitimacy? Is it help with marketing? Like what are some of the benefits of like talking to the guy versus doing research that's, or that type of thing? Yeah.
1: It's a really interesting question. And I I don't, Actually, I think I've, no one's asked me that before. Um, so let me, let, I, you know, I'll, I'll think, I'll think out loud, which can be dangerous, but let's do it. Um, one, one big thing is that a lot of the other sources that I had access to, you know, were articles from that era, like let's say from 1995 mm-hmm. to 2003 about Elon's first startup, Zip2, and then his next startup, which was Caldex.com, and became PayPal. I had good quotes from hundreds of articles and stories and press releases and stuff. Yeah. But I couldn't know for certain if he was misquoted by somebody or if someone got something wrong or if someone shaded the truth or if someone missed the whole thing, which has been known to happen, right? (laughs) right. We're also talking about articles that are 20 plus years old. So that was one reason was accuracy. I wanted to ask him questions that only he would know the answer to and that Mm -hmm. I could talk to him about specifically. The second is what I would call a personal touch or like personality or voice. Let mm-hmm. me give you an example. In my last conversation with him, I asked, I kicked off on a, in a somewhat, I think, what it was an unexpected way. In 2012, I believe it was 2012, one of his best friends passed away. His name was Greg Corey. Greg was the co founder, along with Elon and Kimball, of their first startup. It was called Zip2. Mm-hmm. I wanted to touch on that moment. And I wanted to honor Greg's memory. Greg played a really big role at zip two. And I had contacted and communicated with his widow because there was a section in the book about zip Mm two, but I wanted to ask Elon, you know, Greg died when he was 51. Elon is 51. Now I wanted to talk to him about what his best friend meant to him. Because if you lose a best friend, I mean, that's like, that's a huge loss for people. It's a big, big deal. And I didn't, it wasn't a big thing, but I wanted to ask about Greg because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't overstating the role that he played in Elon's life. Mm-hmm. And Elon was really, you know, he was really, he actually, it was interesting. He paused and he said, Greg was a trickster with a heart of gold. Mm. And he was someone who only used his powers for good. And it was such a great little nugget. Right. And I love that framing of it, like the trickster with a heart of gold. But I couldn't have gotten that from other interviews. And here's the reason why. Other people who are more traditional journalists who have a different kind of job have to ask him about the of the moment thing. They have to ask him the tough question. They have to ask him the like that thing. Yeah, I was taking a step back and looking at him historically. So I was allowed to ask a question about his best friend's passing, which I thought was interesting and kind of helped to make this section work. But I wanted to make sure that I got it. Throughout the story, those personal touches become apparent. And then and that's the reason that it was important to talk to him in person, because it's one thing to read about him being fired from this job or hearing about, you know, um, some moment from someone else. It's another when he talks to me, talks me through what he learned from being ousted at the company. It was like a really interesting moment of like, here are the four or five things I would have done differently. It was, it was powerful. It was powerful to see him reflect. The last reason is, credibility in the sense that if you haven't talked to the person, you know, what did did you really do the book? Like, it's like one of those, like, like any reader could look at it and say, well, he didn't talk to the guy. Like, what's the, what, like, what what could he possibly have gotten that I haven't read in 15 other places, right? And the, the nice thing, and I hope this appeals to readers, like there's a lot of new information about these people in this book. And the reason is because I had multiple interviews with all of these key players. And I, I really went for broke and trying to understand the angles and stories they never talk about. Um, So those are a few of the reasons. I mean, the last part of it is just fun. Like it is, you know, it's a good time. Like it was, he's a fun, particularly Musk, but all others as well, Max Levchin and David Sachs, they're, they're fun to banter with. They're fun to go into this little like game with because they're clever, they're good with words, you know, they, they, they sort of, they, tr- they, they at this point, especially with PayPal, they reach for humor. So there's a lot of humor in the book. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was also just enjoyable. Like it was an experience in which pe- people who I interviewed, like wept in during interviews with me, they laughed, they went through every range of human emotion. So part of it is just, it was personally fulfilling.
0: I've talked to some other writers who, who are writing similar books. Do you feel like, and podcast hosts as well, do you have to be vulnerable to get vulnerability back? Like how do you kind of approach some of those questions?
1: Yeah, it's really, it's a really good question.
0: I, you
1: do, you do have to be, I think a bit vulnerable without being like weepy or morose or weird, right. Or off-putting. Um, I, I would say, though, that I leaned in the direction of being a professional who is there to do a job. You're, you're, you're a craftsman if you're doing a book. You're not an artist, right? And you're not there to be friends with your sources. In fact, it becomes dangerous if you become too friendly with your sources because then you, don't, you lose your objectivity, mm-hmm. right? And so I wasn't there to like buddy, but, be buddy-buddy, right? I came in. I had done a ton of preparation for every interview. I had a really precise series of questions, but I left room for humor and for warmth and for sadness and for reflection. And that's just the, that's just in the course of like, I wasn't there like following a template, right. Or like, it wasn't like computer code. Like if they say this, then say this, or I left room for like a little bit of a, it was just conversation. Right. Um, I didn't shy away from hard questions, but I also didn't come in like guns blazing. I also it helps when you can walk into a room, hand someone a book you've written, and say, "Hey, this is my last work. Here's what it's about. I think there's something exciting in this PayPal story. You know, would you be willing to talk to me?" Um, uh, the other thing that helps is that I, for particularly for a few of the folks, I always tried to get like warm introductions. Like I always tried to have one person introduce me to someone else there were places where I did cold emails. I spent a lot of cold emails, but in many cases, I had an introduction from one person to another that helped smooth the way. And it was, uh, it helped Granted, you know, grease the skits for the whole project.
0: How do you think about, so another thing, when I spoke with Jonathan Eag, he says doing his research, he will read biographies for facts, autobiographies for feelings. How do you think about mm. facts and feelings going into this book? You kind of mentioned that with, most personality. But yeah. like, is that just kind of sprinkled throughout? Or does it play a bigger part in who they are?
1: Yeah, I hope that people walk away from reading my book with a sense of like personality, because I, I definitely tried to layer that in. Um, it's, a, it's a really, I don't think anyone has a precise like formula for getting the balance between facts and feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, here's what I would say. I have a couple of reflections on it. The first is, If I leaned in any direction, it was in the direction of the facts. So my footnotes are 80 pages long, (laughs) right? Right? Um, And there's a reason for that, which is I think it's important for people to know where this work comes from, that I'm not just making it up, right? That it's not a work of fiction or a work of like stylized nonfiction. I footnote and endnote and cite and source almost everything, including documents I looked at, documents that were shared with me, articles that were published in 1999, things like that. There's the second reason for that is if anyone wants to venture down this path again, I wanted to give them like a little bit of a roadmap. Like, here's yeah. what I found. Like, good luck to you. Um, really good luck, because this is brutal. Um the but the 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 feelings part is um facts can, you know, it's it's also you're too people shouldn't be so quick to divorce facts and feelings, mm-hmm. meaning feelings can emerge from simply the facts of what happened, right? Um you, you can add a little dose of feeling in the writing, but really like it helps to just stick to the facts and like layer the sequence in a certain way, right? Uh, and that way the reader gets to experience it for themselves. You really don't want to tell the reader how to feel, right? Like that's a little bit presumptuous if you're telling them how to feel. But I will give you an example of a very specific moment where this is relevant. I was speaking to, I was interviewing Elon and we were speaking about his ousting from the company. And I asked him an interesting, I asked him what I take to be an interesting question because he he thought about it for a second. I said, you know, you would have been well within your rights to like attack the company in the press, go after the people who ousted you, you know, sell your shares back, you know, create all kinds of noise and drama. And I said, and to a person, even the people who ousted you say, you, you act really graciously. You didn't do that. You didn't come after them, you know? And I asked him, I said, why? Like, why didn't you do that? And as he was answering the question, I sensed the emotion in his voice. Hmm. And he said, the company was my baby. If I attack the company and the people who work there, it would be like attacking my baby. And then he told the story of King Solomon from the Bible, like, you know, the, the split the baby in half story. Yeah. And I, in the book, I write, I add a little note, like Musk said, comma, his voice tinged with emotion. That was an accurate description of his response to me to the question, but it also communicates that this was painful for him. And I wanted the reader to understand that this wasn't like he got ousted and he moved on and built SpaceX and Tesla and everything was happy go lucky. I wanted to understand, I wanted the reader to understand, like this was really difficult for him and for the people who worked for him as well. And so, is that a place where I maybe like added feeling and could have just stuck with said Musk? Sure. Do I, think, do I think my version's more accurate? Absolutely I do. And I would stand by my, my description there, right? Um, and so I think you have to play it very like, you have to, you have to sort of find a way to, to make it work. But if anything, like there's so little trust in media if you're going to lean in any direction, I would say lean in the direction of the facts and just do a better job of like telling the facts and like making the story come to life, you know, write with more intelligence and verve and like really bring scenes out, pick interesting characters, like make the you can make these things come to life, right? The, the two two writers, writer A and writer B could take the same set of facts and make one like one thing super compelling and make the other like, you know, again, like like doing your homework and hmm. and I think if you are in this world you have an obligation to find the spot in the Venn diagram where the where you're telling the truth but where you're making it enjoyable to to read the truth hmm.
0: Well, thank you so much. I think we just got maybe time for one more. Uh, this one might just be for me, so I'll see how it fits into the whole interview. But I think in the early in the book and you said earlier, um, you had a daughter recently. So while yeah. during the writing process of this, my wife and I are expecting our first. I'm curious how it's going to change my habits and stuff like that. Do you have any advice for like writing with the newborn and that type of thing?
1: Yeah, Um <laughs> Oh boy, we could do a whole separate show just That'd on be this because I got a lot of thoughts. I would say the, the a couple couple of thoughts. The first is you will unexpectedly find yourself more disciplined because you will have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, once your time goes away, all those sort of things that you commit to half-heartedly, or all the like projects that you're kind of like sort of in, sort of out, or all the dinners that you didn't really want to say yes to, but you said yes to anyway, you're gonna say no to all those. I don't, I don't do, I really do very little in my life outside of like my work, my writing and my daughter, like there's not much else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it for it enforces discipline, right? Like because you just don't want to miss out on these years you want to be helpful and you want to be a good parent, all of that. So that's one thing is you'll find yourself unexpectedly disciplined. Um, the second is you will learn to write differently because you will ask different questions about everything you read from here on out. Once you become a parent, super interesting. I write in this in the book about. A, a young engineer named Robert Frezza who passes away. He's working at PayPal when he dies. He's only 20. He's just shy of his 22nd birthday, 21st or 22nd birthday. It's a really powerful poignant moment in the book because he's very young. He's an intern at the company and he was beloved by the company. He was responsible for some of its signature techn- technology and over a, a kind of, you know, late December, and he's gone, right? And this is the first experience that many of these people had with death. I knew that I wasn't, you know, he wasn't around to share his story, but I contacted his father who very generously was A, just like surprised that someone cared, B was like really generous in sharing all of the notes and documents that his son had sent him about his time at the company, which described this just extraordinary kid and his engagement with this place and like how special it was and how excited he was and like how cool it felt to come into work every day and how they were all nerds just like him and how they played video games just like him. And I don't think that I would have had the wherewithal to ask that of a father who is I think you grieve forever. So, you know, a grieving father, if I wasn't a father myself, Hmm. I don't think that I would have even had the wherewithal to like ask family members or or like of of deceased people in the story if I hadn't like gone through the experience of like becoming a parent because it just changes your perspective on the world, right? I mean, that's a Hmm. cliche, but the the part of it that's not cliche is, is asking like how your experiences as a kid shape you to do some of these things later, right. Right. Or how your experiences as an adolescent, you reorient your whole way of engaging with the world. Right. Um, The other, the other piece of it is you feel more invested in knowing that my daughter at some point, fingers crossed, right. is going to read the book without me being there Mm. or that, you know, is is actually like it raises your bar for quality like everything about it becomes like whoa i'm not just writing this for like me and random readers this is actually like a kind of thing for her that's why i tucked a little note into her for her at the end of the acknowledgements uh because i was like look i hope you get around reading this and if you do here you go
0: Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200-plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.